0: We spent the last two weeks with the Brits in that desperate middle time after the outbreak, but before the United States entered World War II, this week is no different. As we discussed in our reviews of Dunkirk and Darkest Hour, this isn't a time that comfortably fits into popular narratives of the war. This wasn't a good look for anyone, appeasement giving way to desperation for the UK and privileged indifference from the US. In going back to address this time period, Dunkirk and Darkest Hour, films whose creators wanted to celebrate British heroism, threaded a needle to avoid highlighting some uncomfortable truths about the early days of the war. Today's film is a bit of a stunner in that context, because it came out in 1958, and much of the modern World War II myth had not yet entered the canon. People didn't need a myth, they remembered it. And while this film is not a scathing polemic about the evils of war as such, it feels distinctly less like propaganda than our two previous films. But I need to stop comparing them now because Adam will get very cranky with me. This film is about the tugboat captains who brought incapacitated ships back to port after German U-boat or dive bomber attacks. The tugboats are badly outgunned and the casualty rates among the crews are high. Our American hero, William Holden, shows up having slid into the job via a commission in the Canadian Army. He's got a local friend in Trevor Howard, who also captains a tugboat, and not long after the two reunite, we meet Sophia Loren, the housebound woman who cohabitates the apartment where Howard lives. Their relationship is vague due to the Hays Code's prescription surrounding the depiction of fornicators, but we all do the math. Howard gives Holden a spare key to the flat, proposes marriage to Sophia Loren, and promptly buys the farm trying to rescue a ship. What's heavily implied here is that being in love with Sophia Loren is a death sentence. Trevor Howard is her third tugboat captain boyfriend to go to Davy Jones' locker. When William Holden moves into the apartment, the movie dangles that fact over his character like the Sword of Damocles, as the two of them fall in love with each other. But he's a tough, capable captain. He whips his English crew into shape, and they actually comport themselves with great heroism. And the sea combat scenes are fantastically well executed. You start to wonder, is luck really such a powerful force? Is Sophia Loren being cast as some kind of succubus who puts curses on these guys? Or is it just that they're doing a super dangerous job and the odds aren't in their favor? Can't these two beautiful people just be in love and get married and live happily ever after? In the end, Holden chooses to toss a copy of the key to the apartment to one of his fellow captains before heading out on a particularly dangerous rescue mission. He hedges his bets, arranging for another guy to take care of the woman he loves in the event of his death. But what's indicated to her by this is that he has no faith in their relationship and he sees her as something to be passed off to a successor. Heartbroken, she flees to London. 1958 had a really different take on what it meant for the UK to be in the war before the US declared. This is a film that should not be missed. Director Carol Reed and writer-producer Carl Foreman produced a masterpiece that seems, unfortunately, to have been forgotten. We poor sinners on the tugs deserve a few breaks along the way. Today on Friendly Fire, the key. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast, whose hosts give first-class husband kisses. I'm Ben Harrison.
1: The best I can promise is a uh, comfort plus. I'm Adam Pranica. <laughs> Back in row thirty is <laughs> <it's> John Roderick. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm John Roderick. Row thirty by
2: the bathroom.
1: Yeah. That's me. If you want, if you want that bathroom kiss, John Roderick's your man got a middle seat because I lost my silver medallion <laughs> status
0: Oh no slipped through your fingers like tears and rain that's how that metaphor works right mm-hmm.
1: Have you ever seen the the uh, status bag tags on fire off of the uh, Orion's belt <laughs> <laughs> this is this
2: is all a, an insult to my Blade Runner meme and I'm not gonna enjoy not gonna yeah. enjoy teasing
0: This was a great movie that I had never heard anything about. This was
2: a great movie, and I had never heard anything about it either.
0: The first credit that comes up is Carl Foreman presents, and uh, we talked a bit about Carl Foreman on our Bridge over the River Kwai episode. He was the uh, like the grand uncle of my of my wife, who was blacklisted uh, for six years. Uh, this was a this was a big deal for him. He he wrote and produced this movie.
1: You take every opportunity to go on and on about the persecution of your people. <laughs> <Ben>.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying Like we, we sat down to watch this movie last night And neither of us had ever heard of it And the first credit comes up And we both sat up in our seats Like, what? And, uh, and it's a great movie This seems like it should be considered a classic And it seems relatively obscure Despite that
1: It should not be obscure I am with you guys This movie was fantastic And it's one of those friendly fire films that I feel like in addition to whatever rating we give it, we need to also give it the sidecar rating of, go and see this movie. It, it is worth your time.
0: It's one of those friendly fire movies that like 5,000 fewer people will listen to because they've never heard of the movie. Yeah. And that is a crying shame. Yeah. Let
2: us interrogate briefly why this movie isn't a classic or maybe... In some circles, it is, but none of us have ever heard of it. And I I had that same experience halfway through the movie. I was like, either this movie is going to get really bad at some point, or this is a lost classic.
0: Uh, I went to the Turner Classic Movies database of films and Scroll down to the bottom. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. I have platinum medallion, Turner Classic Movie status.
1: He's allowed to kiss anyone at Turner Classic Movies.
0: This blew me out of the water. There's a Leonard Malton rating and review section on this on this page. Two and a half out of four stars. Wow.
1: Oh, fuck and, you, uh, Leonard Malton? Really? What the fuck? It says, <laughs>
0: Uh, List the stars. Uh, This uh, Jan de Hartog novel becomes a pointless romance tale. Lorraine is a disillusioned woman passing out a key to her room to a series of naval captains during World War II.
1: That's not the plot at all. Leonard Malton didn't watch this movie and he reviewed it badly. You know, Leonard Malton also watched Predator and was like, uh, everything was great. What this movie really needed was a turn to camera montage during the credits. <laughs> Clearly, not watching the end of that film either.
0: So, he, he brought a John Roderick level of scrutiny to the film?
1: Yeah. Hey. <laughs> why, is, why is Leonard Malton giving up? <laughs> Phoning
0: it in. The Leonard Malton movie review policy.
1: Wow. Get it together. Yeah. That's not the story at all. Well, so, so uh, maybe an
2: element of it is that that central plot that Sophia Loren is the one constant as this series of tugboat captains comes and goes out of her life, that would have been pretty scandalous in the time this movie was made, scandalous to the point of like people fanning themselves as they fainted in the in the
0: aisle. Yeah,
2: definitely. I imagine the studio did everything it could to put some veil between the fact that she was in a series of serial unmarried relationships with these guys. And that might've been just, that might've just singed the fingertips of, of Hollywood to such a degree that the movie disappeared. I mean, I don't know. Do we have box office figures for a thing like this?
1: Hmm. That's an interesting question. Uh... I just don't see how Malton could have that take. I think one of the most poignant moments in the film was how shattered Kane was that Captain Ford didn't give him the key. Right. Like that, there's that moment in the film where like Kane, Kane wants the key, not because he's in love with Stella or wants the comfort of the apartment. He sees it as his inability to earn the respect of his captain to the degree that he could be given that key.
2: Uh, or really, or do you think do you think he is a suicide? And the only way he can think of to kill himself is to be the next
0: to get the key. Whoa. Wow. Suicide by key. I'm sorry to get all
2: interp on you guys, but...
0: Uh...
1: You know, your angle is really interesting because it butts up against the the idea of something supernatural happening here that is never a part of the story. It's It's whether or not a character believes in the supernatural that... There's such a tension between, like, Stella's perception of herself and her witchcraft. Right. There's no one in the film that believes her to be a witch. And yet, that seems to be a, like, a vein of this story that's never commented on. Like, is she or is she not bad luck? Does it matter?
0: The closest they get is, at one point, Captain Ross, I think, says, I know what you are. And that could... Be interpreted as like demon witch that curses sailors or prostitute or you know any number of things on the like spectrum in between those right. But
2: he does like Ross does not a, not a one eighty on her, but like a like a seven twenty.
0: On her, he <laughs> he's spinning around in the. They r- said it couldn't be done, but he's one of the best people to ever strap on a
2: snowboard. <laughs> he 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 did a frontside ollie, he did a full kickflip, and then a seven twenty, and he landed it. But like from the from the moment he meets her and understands her relationship to Trevor Howard, until until the part the moment in the movie when he's like, I can't live without you. Boy, he, is, yeah. he takes a lot of different uh, tacks with her. But when, when Trevor Howard spills the wine on his shirt and she gets that horrified look and Holden sees it, the implication is that, the, the, that she had had a similar premonition about the two earlier captains before they went to their death. Right. And we don't ever see that. We don't know what her premonitions were.
0: Well, she saw that scene and she went on to write the script for Memphis Belle.
2: <laughs> Who's Sophia Loren or her character, <laughs> Stella? S- Sophia Loren. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but like really her. First of all, I, w- I would like to just take a second to step back from that sentence. I was in the middle of and say she is an incredible actor in this movie from the moment she appears on you know she's only like 24 years old don't worry you'll be all right the first time is the worst from the moment she appears on the screen she is you cannot tear your eyes off of her and it's not because she's beautiful it's because she's acting the shit out of her character
1: and she's not acting big like 60s big either no it's it's fairly restrained her horror
2: it's deep i mean her she carries a lot of of weight in this movie and it's you know it's she could have played this way more resignedly, you know, she could right. have just been like the, the woman that's getting passed around, but she has all this dignity and all this ferocity.
0: Right. She has she has that veneer of dignity that you can see the trauma boiling beneath. And that's such a, a tricky trick to pull off, you know.
1: But is she a witch? If they remade this film, she would be. And all exterior <laughs> shots of the Sea View Apartments fourth floor walk-up would be like thunder and lightning, <laughs> rung. Like it would be, it would be super hack. But there are so many re- restrained elements to this film that make her story and her legend so much more satisfying than that. Goddess, please. So this was
0: a this is a Hayes Code era film, and uh, we were talking about the kind of. Chastity or not of her character, um, there's actually a different version of the ending that was filmed where he catches up with her. But because that implies that they're actually in love and were doing it uh, throughout the movie, that was not ever on the movie uh, for release in the United States. I think that was like there there were European audiences that saw them end up together at the end.
2: So in the story, as I read it. American audiences could not bear that they would have had out of wedlock sex and not paid a high price for it.
0: And, and it's never like they're always like sleeping in separate rooms, despite the fact that uh, he is going over to her apartment. Well, and also that
2: bathrobe. Can we just take a like a one minute aside and talk about her bathrobe?
1: Which one? She had like three. Oh, and they're all so great. This is a great clothes film, isn't it? The shawl collars. The clothing and the luggage in this film. Are spectacular. All the cable knit sweaters that the captains wear on their way out to the boat. Give me a break. Yeah, those things are awesome. <laughs> that that is a forty pound sweater that William Holden is wearing on his way to his last mission. Right. Yeah. Like you go overboard and you are sinking to the bottom. That's all there is to it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I saw somebody doing curls with a, a sweater in the background. One yeah. of those shots.
1: Did the ending you're talking about? influence how this film was seen uh, to a modern audience like to what degree are Haze Code films kind of dismissed based on their their need to obey the strict rules of the time and is this one of those films that was swept under the rug because of it
2: I think the Haze Code what it it just was another obstacle like in any creative endeavor it's something you can definitely see its fingerprints on movies but some of the greatest movies of all time were made under its auspices. So you make a pretty
1: strong case for bringing it back, John.
2: Well, you know, <laughs> I think the voting age should be thirty too, but
1: yeah no, I, I, uh, I don't think it's that.
2: I think I think the modern audience looks at this and as the audience of its time looks at it and understands that the the, the core idea of that key is not the apartment. It's that you get the girl that comes with the apartment. That's what makes it so witchy.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, because if it was just like, hey, there's a nice apartment and you can, you know, there's a girl living there, you can kick her out if you want.
1: Yeah, that's always on the table too, right? The apartment's great. Uh, you can take or leave Stella. Which is nuts.
2: I mean, that would be yeah. nuts in in any era of filmmaking.
0: Does the first implication of supernaturalness come when? Uh, Holden goes to to use his spare key, and Captain Ford is like, no, 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 no. not yet. Yeah,
2: right, right. Super spooky. What is the fucking deal with that door number,
0: too? Yeah. It kind of, like, it felt like a Korean horror film at times, (laughs) like... It's like she's gonna start devouring these guys.
1: <laughs> All the superstitions that we saw of World War Two veterans are are back, but with the sidecar of supernatural, you know? Like there's there's a difference between superstition and supernatural. I think superstition, they're both untrue, but Says you. But the film only ever gives lip service to superstition. The supernatural is up to the viewer. To, yeah. uh, to project.
2: The film, you're absolutely right. The film never, even for a second, puts that really in there. It's it's just, it's kind of inescapable, all those clues. Like you were saying, Ben, the, it seems like the apartment is alive, but it's not. It's not a Stephen King movie. Well, sometimes
1: that is better.
2: I think the first supernatural, or I mean, the, the first moment that I felt like, oh, there's something up in this movie was when it became clear that Trevor Howard had inherited this apartment and woman, and yet he was completely in love with her, completely infatuated, and he said a few times, like, whatever, it doesn't matter, I don't care, this is the happiest I've ever been. He, you know, he kind of is dismissing, he says to Holden a couple of times, like, I know what you're thinking. Yeah. And, it, and, it's, and it's clear that he is under a spell. Did you guys feel menace? I mean, the threat that the tugboat captains are marked for death. Right. But was there other menace?
0: I think the movie intentionally does not do anything to disabuse you of the idea that that there's something at play that is larger than just the the facts of the matter. Like it's under, I'm really glad we got to watch this movie so close to Dunkirk and Darkest Hour because they kind of yeah. all are set in this period before the US enters the war where it just feels super hopeless for England. Feels like they are they just don't have the resources to do the thing that they need to do like with the and and in this movie, that's like, oh, like, the gun is, like, not a good enough gun to be defending these boats against U-boats and, and dive bombers. And also, they're, like, rusting out and stuck in one position, and you can't, like, turn them to shoot at the thing that you need to shoot at.
1: And their situation is so desperate that that they actually need to tow these boats on fire about to sink— back to harbor like they need to try to salvage them they're they're needed so badly right it's crazy this is an amazing story one that i wasn't aware of at all a lot like the dunkirk story
0: it is so interesting through this project how many different angles we've seen this one war from
1: Like, the chain of command is such a huge thing in so many war films, and that being the conflict. You're given a main character that rubs up against someone above them, and it's just the tension throughout. But I really love how this film sets up Ford and Ross as equals. They're both captains. They're both having different experiences on their separate boats. They're commiserating and having, you know, like post-game meetings about what happened out there. I love that... I love that you get to experience their friendship on that level rather than having Ross work for Ford, for example. And that seems rare in a war film. I don't know why that is. It, it works so well here.
0: Yeah. I think, it, I mean, it's kind of a unique scenario, right? Where where officers at that level are like uh, coming back and having, you know, time on the land. Yeah. Because they're, they're kind of like hot bunking these ships, right? Like there's oh, two man, captains they're,
1: per... They're hot tugging <laughs> is what they're doing. <laughs> you get uh, you get Van Dam going out on the day shift, and then you get uh, Ross taking the night, if he's right. lucky.
2: I think that's really probably unusual in a military context, you know, if you, because like submarines now that are supposed to always be at sea—that's part of their deterrent—they have this same thing: two complete crews, like under a, under a captain. It's basically like red team, blue team. But where else in the military do you have a situation where every afternoon or every couple of days you're back at the shack with all the other guys that are the same rank as you, just like high fiving, and then going back out? It's kind of
0: it's rare. And also the relationship between the captains of the tugs and the captains of the boats that they've saved, like those like guys with with smoke all over their faces, always coming in and saying like a camp like a, a. So appreciative of what you did for my boys out there.
1: Yeah, you saved my boat. The one thing Memphis (laughs) Belle did really well was build the tension of the idea of the more missions you go on, you're building a sample size that will eventually result in your crapping out.
0: Yeah, there's a probability issue that is not in your favor.
1: And this film does that same thing. Every time they go, and there's a frequency to the missions that's just relentless... Yeah. And it really builds that tension throughout the film. Every time someone gets that call, it's just dreadful.
2: Put it on the top of your list for complete overhaul.
0: The filmmaking in this is really stunning. Superb. Like the the stuff that they get at sea like that first mission where it's just like, Hey, I'll take you out on my on, on my boat, I'll show you what we're doing and the, like like the first cut is it's a very choppy sea, like there's water spilling over the edge of the boat. William Holden and Trevor Howard are like struggling to stay aboard. It's so it's so nautical out there. And it just is not something you get to see in a movie shot in nineteen fifty eight. That it's
2: not green screened. A lot of that, right. It's
0: they're really out at sea. No, there are like a few model shots when they do combat scenes. But like, even during the combat scenes, a lot of it was practically shot and yeah. it's really incredible.
1: I really loved all of those shots that you've described. I also love how Hitchcocky in this film felt when things started to go wrong. You saw a lot of Dutch angles, that dolly yeah. shot, uh, through the crowded dance floor that Ross is walking through when he thinks he sees Stella is totally out of horror film that was crazy what right. a great shot it was that was amazing
2: because he keeps changing he's not just going straight through the crowd he keeps changing and they're dancing away and it feels very yeah very uh, ominous but also like I, I was just wondering how is this camera wending its way through people like this
1: yeah there are a thousand rom coms that bit the shot of that, that pivots around William Holden's head when Stella kisses him for the first time. Like, that feels <laughs> like the first time that's ever been done. And it was done in yeah. this film. It was awesome.
0: Uh, Oswald Morris, the uh, cinematographer on this film, has a pretty long and cool career. He shot uh, his last film was The Dark Crystal in 1982. Whoa. Whoa. But uh, he shot a ton of great stuff and a a ton of things that are uh, on our list. So I think um, I think we'll we'll revisit him. I I don't
2: normally notice that type of stuff the way you guys do, but there were like the opening shot of the movie was a big crane shot that had two hundred elements all moving at once, and then obviously the last shot of the film with the with the steam on the train platform in that night lighting that was one of the more beautiful shots i think i've seen you know i almost didn't want to cut to inside that cloud i wanted that cloud to overtake them and then like fin.
1: sometimes a film sets the tone with a shot like that that it can never pay off again but this film is so (laughs) consistent with how great the compositions are throughout that it it just maintains that quality
0: I think of, of particular note also are the shots inside the apartment building. Like when they first go up to that apartment, the the way the camera is kind of like on these crazy angles as they go up the up the staircase, mm-hmm. it, it immediately puts you ill at ease, you know? It's the same Dutch angles that we get for every shot when they're on the boat. It feels unsafe.
2: What is a Dutch angle?
0: A Dutch angle is when the camera is not, uh, like the bottom... Uh, of the frame is not parallel to the ground so the camera is canted at an angle and uh, in this film pretty much every shot when they're out on the water is dutched but also a lot of the shots in that apartment are dutched which is a contrast from everything else that happens on the land
1: wow i love that shot uh later on in the film like when holden goes up to the wardrobe and pushes the coat hangers aside. You get a shot you see a thousand times an hour in a television commercial, but the shot from inside the wardrobe, yeah, shooting out, a, and you know he's that. Looking the, in there, and he goes, "What do we got? We got yeah, cola. We got sunny purple D, stuff. Yeah, <laughs> they they totally have a sunny D shot in this film. Problem, guys." and you know they had to build a wardrobe with a false back and put a camera behind it and like do all that stuff for like a five second shot they put in the work
2: this movie was in black and white was it just a budgetary choice was it was it a hitchcockian choice it
1: is hard to know right there's something really beautiful about it as a black and white film the contrast is really striking I I didn't miss color at all.
0: Yeah, I I I think um, you can do some things in black and white that you can't do in color, like the bloodiness of that red wine that goes all mm-hmm. over him is so pronounced in a way that the ch- the tomato soup in Memphis Bell does not really look like blood. Like yeah, they seem a little silly for for thinking it's blood for as long as they do in Memphis Bell because it's, like, very obviously the wrong color and the wrong texture. But that uh, that wine uh, really, like, it breeds as blood the second that happens. Right. Uh, I actually have a, a pedantic moment about that wine. Uh, thought I might uh, slip in here. Chris accidentally drenches his shirt in red wine. But then in the next shot, his undershirt is clean and dry with no sign of inevitable wine stains.
2: That irked me, too. As someone who spilled a lot of red wine on his shirts, <laughs> let me tell you, it goes right through to your undershirt. Not to get too friendly fire about it, but let's let's interrogate masculinity as represented in this film. There are a lot of movies, and we've seen quite a few, where war is the setting, but it's really a, a domestic drama. And this movie there is this domestic story at the heart of it but it is really also a, a great war movie and the men and their roles and their their jocularity but competition with each other there's so much packed in the whole relationship between William Holden and his crew there is the fear that everybody feels that the captain isn't allowed to show but the captain's with one another are all confessing their fear they all confess their fear to Sophia loren there's that moment when holden is like i'm not going out that's a suicide mission the officers and the enlisted people all get real stiff backed judgmental of his cowardice
1: was it that he was not british that gave him the oxygen in the room to even say that
2: i think it was the royal navyness if you notice all their their gold on their sleeves what that denoted was that this was the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve. So everybody here is uh, presumably from the Merchant Marines. Or
0: yeah, I was reading that the the novel that this is based on, all the captains are Dutch, and that they kind of rejiggered it for the film when William Holden was cast as the lead and Sophia Loren. Was, like the, I think the Stella character was was british in the in the novel you could
1: never make that movie as written because if these were dutch captains no one would have any dialogue <laughs> it'd just be a lot of staring out to sea
0: yeah and uh, d- dutch captains only have half boats right oh uh, no their boats are none of their boats stand up straight they're all they're all at an yeah aim.
1: they're all leaning over <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh i love this show Can I read you guys a thing I read on IMDb that, I mean, you guys tell me if this makes any sense to you. Uh, This was in the trivia section. It says, ironically, the influence of the production code in preventing William Holden to fulfill his non-marital alliance with Sophia Loren at the end of the film allows him to walk off with Kieran Moore in what was obviously suggested to be a homosexual affiliation. Did that read to you guys at all? I did not get that.
2: No, I didn't either. As they walked off into the steam, that was my first thought. Really? That this, yeah, that this was in the, lang- in the cinematic language of the time, this was how you communicated a gay relationship within the Hayes Code. And wow. I didn't understand it. It caused me then to immediately reflect back to room 77.
0: And room 77 is the hotel room where there are like eight guys in bunks all right. sleeping in one room together.
2: Um. But also, you know, the fact that Kane is far and away the handsomest guy in the in the film.
1: He's really the Billy Zane of this movie. He's super Billy Zane. <laughs> and he's always
2: of, of everybody in the movie. You'll notice, I think if we went and walked and watched it again, he is kind of uh, drenched in dew the entire movie. Like he's very he's very wet compared to everyone else.
0: That jaunty fur vest.
2: Mm-hmm. A fur vest. Leave the vest on. Uh, but I didn't I didn't understand what the movie was trying to tell me. Like, do the two of them go back and share the apartment? Is that the end of the key? Because with her gone and him saying, I'm gonna get her, I'm gonna find her one day and, and Kane going, Mm-hmm, sure. Like, where do they go? They don't go back to room seventy seven.
1: I was grateful that the film ended with this many unanswered questions. I was afraid that it was going to tie things up in a neater bow. Like, as soon as Ross gives Kane the key, as soon as he throws it at him before going out on his last mission, I was like, roll credits. Roll them right now like, this is where this movie needs to end like roll the credits over ross's tugboat going over the horizon on this last mission i don't want to know whether he lives or dies right and that it maintained that ambiguity from that moment all the way up until the end i thought was a gift yeah that was really strong
0: you know when he gave sophia
2: loren the key thereby interrupting the I mean, by breaking the spell, basically. That's the moment where you realize, oh, it's you know, like the cycle is broken. And yet now we're really on the hook.
0: Upper witch. You never know what it's going to do.
2: And then he in, the, in that moment of weakness, like terrible weakness, he throws the key to Cain and he tries to get there in time. But, you know, Cain couldn't get there fast enough.
1: There's such a dimensionality to that betrayal that could be so many different things like the idea of Ross giving Kane to Stella is one aspect that it could be.
2: You mean given? You mean giving Stella to Kane, or giving yeah. Kane to Stella?
1: I mean, either interpretation works. I mean, they're both on the list. But the first time I watched this scene, and I watched it a couple of times. The first time I went through it, I felt like Stella's main betrayal in this moment is that Ross got on the boat knowing he was going to die instead of choosing a life with her. Oh. Like, Hmm. he knew he was going to die, she told him as much, and he still did it anyway. He knew enough to give the key away before going out on the mission, and that he didn't have faith in himself enough to come back or the ability to come back from a suicide mission. Like, that's on the list for me. There's so many other reasons in totality that make up Stella's feelings in this moment. It's one of the great moments in this film is that moment. And I think it's because of how you view it. The prism through which you view this scene makes it so many different things.
2: You mean when he comes back and says, I survived. And we're all expecting her to go, my darling. Right. Right. And instead she says, get out.
1: There are 10 reasons for her to say get out to him, and I think all of them work. That's why that scene is so great to me.
0: And yet you're still crestfallen. like You right. still have a mom- like, you yeah. hope in your heart when he gets to the apartment.
2: Yeah. And his reaction when he's there getting stitched up and he's like, let me go, let me get out of here. Like he creates a diversion and runs through the door. I remember feeling like, what, what is, why is he reacting this way? It sets you up, but I was still stunned when she said get out. And and before she even
1: said it, you could see it on her face. Kane's been there for what? 10 minutes. And you get half a minute in that scene. And it looks like he lives there. There's something about Kieran Moore's performance in that moment. That's like, not only are you five minutes late, you are a thousand years late. Like he's already moved in. It's over.
2: Well here. And so here's the question, I guess, if Ross had not survived, if he had gone down with his ship would Kane have moved in and been the next? And and Sophia Loren would have continued to live in that apartment and and the spell would have continued on? Is the whole I think fact,
1: Room 77's a dump, man. I think you got to take the fourth floor walk-up, well, right? Well, no,
2: but the que- of course he's going to go there, but the question is, would Stella have stayed? And I think yeah. she would have. The whole reason yeah. that Stella is able to escape is that that Holden did break the spell. He just broke it and then, and then broke the, the covenant between them. And then she's off to London. She tucks the key into the armrest of the train. Like doesn't even keep it as a souvenir.
0: They're never going to find that thing.
2: Oh, I would find it. I have a whole fucking desk drawer of keys I've found on trains.
0: Then <laughs> <laughs> you could have moved into that apartment. She wouldn't have been there.
2: I still might. <laughs>
0: Don't drink too much. No, no, no.
2: When we first meet her, the disparity between Trevor Howard's youth and attractiveness and hers gongs like a out of tune bell.
1: It's one of those August and two years ago July relationships. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and at first, I thought. At first, it drew me out of the movie a little bit because I was like, "Is this some 1950s thing where they're just it's just young girl, old actor?" But you know, that wasn't really how they played it back then. That was a thing that came later. That Michael Caine uh, romancing a 24-year-old when he's 56. I mean, that's a that's a more recent development in Hollywood. There's always been ingenues or whatever, but but it wouldn't have been so dramatic. I don't think unless it was a plot point, which it turned into that the fact that they were so just so radically different. And it made her seem that much more like a like maybe a supernatural or uh, otherworldly, let's say,
1: you know, what's interesting about how you're describing them is that for the age difference as there is and the and the societal status difference that we know there to be. Stella has the power in that relationship. In this whole he movie. He needs shows. her. He needs her and he wants her and she always feels unattainable to him. He can't make her do anything. Nobody can. He begs her can. to marry him. Well,
2: he he, te- he he begs her to sit down. <laughs> there's, yeah, yeah. There's like five, Yeah, let alone marry. Yeah. Five moments in this film where somebody tells her to do something and she either doesn't or does it in such a way that you that by the time she actually sits in the chair the other person you know the man in her life is like please just please just please just please yeah <laughs> <laughs> please sit in the chair like you know she's so and i think a lesser a lesser actress could not have pulled off this movie and i i don't know how the director understood that she had this charisma and this this talent
0: they actually wanted to replace her carl foreman uh was trying to replace her with ingrid bergman after they'd been filming for a few weeks and holden stood up for her
1: good job good job holden i think i could see ingrid bergman doing it but I i could never see her as haunted as sophia loren is in this film it's just different i'm glad they didn't go that route
0: i'll tell her how i pulled you up
1: yes of course after you threw me in you swine you took advantage of a drunken man let's talk for a second about
2: william holden's judgment of her I mean he basically is calling her a whore
0: and or a witch
2: <laughs> even after he uses the key and comes in right. drunk he's basically saying I can't stay in the hotel anymore and she and at at, the, at one point he's like well I'm just going back to the hotel cuz I can't you know I can't be here with you a fallen woman and he and she just impassively like basically holds the door for him. And he's like, please, please Stella, don't make me go back to the hotel. And it's this like switcheroo, like that she was not making him go back to the hotel. He was talking him. He was talking in, in uh, in circles. She was just standing there, but he, he turns and begs her to not send him away. It's just, if we were following his words, we would have been in a very different place in that, moment than we would be if we were following like their
0: eyes. I think like right before that in that scene, she's done that part where she kind of like gives him the rundown on the apartment. Like it's just a procedure for her at that point, like installing a new dude in (laughs) the, in the role. Here's your razor. Here's your shampoo. Yeah. The chimney needs to be cleaned. The shops are walking distance etc etc it's a it's an interesting moment because it really does feel totally divorced of romance there's no it, it's so it's so impersonal that i wonder if he reacts against that and and that's why he starts kind of slinging the uh insults at her that he does
1: there's a triangulation of that about her in this film that's really well done that I don't feel like a lot of films would have been able to do aptly because Van Damme describes her in the way that he does. There's the, there's the apartment manager that describes her in the way that she does. And then there's also Ross's personal experience. We're, all, we're getting the same information about her from multiple sources, and right. it never feels like you're beaten over the head with that because all the takes are are unique. Yeah, and they're like from the perspective. Like
0: Van Damme is like a very religious man, so so it comes from that perspective. And
2: is Van Damme German? No, he's Dutch. He's, he's the Dutch. one. He's the. He, That's right. The story was that that boat belonged to him in the Netherlands, and when the Germans right. invaded, he escaped to England with it.
1: I really like the Van Damme character. It feels like in a lot of war films there's the, the smart older veteran who's gonna show the younger guys the ropes. It's a hell of a combination. And yeah. I love the I love the subtlety of Ross laying back in the cut. Like he's an experienced captain, but he's gonna let Van Damme teach him how to be a captain of the boat. Right. And then he uses that cheat sheet uh on the crew he does. that he inherits. That that was a really nicely done scene.
0: Right. It it, it almost seems like Holden is going to be not that great at this yeah. in that scene, and then it turns out he is really great, and also like using the information at a high level. Because they
1: play the pipe thing for laughs. Like I'm thinking, oh no, don't be, don't be the movie where he does funny things with his pipe. But <laughs> but that goes away almost immediately.
0: Yeah, Van Damme's story is also amazing because it's sort of the like. Like he's he's so reliable as the other captain, you know. And then yeah. when when he gets killed in the church bombing, which is also just like a totally amazing effect. Yeah. Like with where they like have the the blackout curtains blow aside and you see that it's just ruined beyond. And then the wall comes down. It was incredible. Um, like his fate is so tied to to Holden's fate, and and it, it is because he dies in that church bombing that holden has to go out on that last suicide run
1: i really loved his personality he's so plain spoken he's the only one in the film that tells ross that she that stella going to kill him like directly she will kill you i want to go back though to the
2: shit talking that he did of her in that drunken scene because i don't think that it was just confined to that scene after trevor howard dies holden does not go to the apartment He keeps the key in his pocket, but he continues to go to room 77. He tells her that Howard is dead. She starts to make room for him. Like, oh, all right. Well, anyway, just one more. Any old port in a storm. And he's furious at her for not being more heartbroken. And he he, he gives her that, like, I see what this is. I see what you are speech then. And he goes back to the hotel and he stays there for what? I mean, multiple nights. To the point that um, that Cain is like, "What are you doing, dude? Why are you here?" And he yeah. and and he's drinking
0: himself to sleep. Why are you Why are you heating un- and farting <laughs> up room seventy seven? When- but like
2: he's he's drinking himself to sleep every night, and the and the implication is that he's not there because he's respecting the memory of his friend. He's not there because, like, what is his moral stance? Other than he's not afraid of her yet, his morals, his, his, the reason he's still in room 77 is that he, that he thinks she's a fallen woman. And, and so the reason he shit talks her when he gets there that final drunken night is that he's wrestling with his own, uh, his own weakness. And that makes it that much more astonishing at how, how quickly and how completely he's transformed into her, not just her servant, but like they're going to be married. Like he's going to, they're going to be together forever. And it's its hard to see exactly how time is compressed here. But no matter how you, no matter how you compress it, this is all happening really fast in their lives. And in me too, you know, like I, like I, I was on the William Holden character arc for a lot of it like what do you do in this situation like yeah you just step into another man's shoes like you're literally wearing yeah. another man's jacket
1: I really liked how symmetrical their joy was when they finally got on the same page when Stella finally leaves the apartment because things are are solid with Ross
0: and that co- kind of coinciding with the news that the US has entered the war like suddenly yeah. this movie feels like open and and, like, like there's lots of possibilities. Like, you could almost see a happy ending happening, like, right then, you know?
1: And that is such a great tease. Like, that—it's it's so well done. And I love that they're both benefiting. It's not that it's a parasitic relationship where once Ross gets— on Stella's program it's just Stella the Tappy or it's just Ross getting his way like they both benefit from each other in a way that gives you that hope that is so crucial for feeling bad at the end of the film which is how you want to feel like I am I was so satisfied with the end of this film for that for treating me with the respect of someone who could take an unhappy ending
0: it's like Lennon said you look for who will benefit
1: Oh, Both of them. <laughs> I thought I thought McCartney said that. <laughs>
2: there's a reading of the way that the relationship between Holden and Loren, there, there's a reading of that arc where she fell in love with him. That's the story. Not that he fell in love with her, but that of all of her sea captains, she fell in love with him. But that's played really subtly because most of the evidence that she fell in love with him most of it as presented is just stuff that she's already done with these other guys. It's just that she put the photograph away. She took the ring off her finger and she went outside.
0: Right. Which makes it feel different. It's not the nihilism of like, she falls in love with whoever is at hand. It seems like this is a different deal, but then it takes away that perception.
1: And crucially, she's not, skipping through the daisies she's just doing grocery shopping like that's all it takes (laughs) for us to see the change in her that she left the apartment at all is sufficient
2: what about it would have caused her to fall in love with him what about him what do we see about william holden other than that he's the star of this movie that would suggest that of all the captains he's the one that would that would transform her because she sees the the premonition of the newspaper in the fireplace and and reads it as a bad omen, just like she did the wine on the shirt.
1: Is it the United States entering the war suddenly making it as though the the tug missions are not going to be necessary anymore in the same way? Is he going to be safe because of that? Does that change his odds of of getting killed in such a way that that she can invest in that relationship differently than she would have before? That's how I viewed it.
0: It's definitely not the flowers. <laughs> she got those two other times. <laughs> it's not the uh, it's not the having nightmares about your ship sinking because everybody would have been having those. What about those sleeping pills? Like the the kind of currency of the sleeping pills that comes in play. In different ways throughout the film
1: and the ominousness of their providing a way out should you choose to take it
2: right well when he took when she gave him those pills something in in me went oh no that's a bad sign that's a sign because I felt like are they in love now and she gave him the pills and I felt like you don't give those pills to someone you love
1: right Wow I did not see it that way. But, but I'm on your side. Like, that's a very convincing argument. Those, those pills do not provide comfort.
0: She gives him those pills, and then we see him have a, a terrifying nightmare, right? Yeah. It's not restful sleep No, they're providing.
1: Yeah, it's like taking NyQuil. Like, I've, I've never had a night of restful sleep with NyQuil. I always have terror dreams. Just me?
0: Yeah, the, the NyQuil works great for me.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. Geez. Wow. All right. Speaking as someone who used to sport drink NyQuil, Jesus. I can say that it is powerful and bad medicine. Wow. If you missed the, um, the two o'clock window for alcohol, you could always go to a 24-hour pharmacy and get a bottle of NyQuil. Wow. And let me tell you, gents, those are dark
1: days.
0: That's why you've always been called the Pimp C of indie rock, right? <laughs>
1: Jesus. Said the Bun B of this podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a trilogy. <laughs>
1: Come on. Everybody knows that.
0: Give us your blessings. It's
1: the time in the show, the time in many ways I'm kind of dreading because it means. We're, uh, we're coming to the point where we need to stop talking about the film we just saw. A film that was a real pleasure to see and discuss. Um, the film paper that I write about this film would go something like Stella embodying the state of the world, the state of the world at war, because she disregards the normal non-war life and makes do with this new way of being, this, this numb. Apartment dwelling person who's just waiting for captain after captain to come through before they die. And when she changes, the war changes. And that idea of hope when the United States joins is such an inflection point in this film. There are so many comments about war and heroism and friendship and romance that I really think that you could write an entire book about this film and all of the subtexts involved. I was so not expecting what I got in this film. You see the movie poster for this film, and it looks like trash. Really, like, not a great poster, not great <laughs> cover art. Like, I was excited to see another William Holden film, Yeah. but Sophia Loren, totally gobsmacking. All of the performances in this film I thought were great. Yeah. It sort of gets back to an early friendly fire enjoyment of warm clothing like in the jackets and the vests and the scarves and the luggage like it's you can really appreciate the film on that level. I I can't wait to watch this film again. It's one of those films in Friendly Fire that that I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for the show in in making me watch this film. As far as the rating goes, there aren't many moments in the film where you feel totally safe. But one of them is Christmas. Stella and Ross are together and they're happy. They're so briefly happy. And there's an ominousness to this scene that isn't just them being happy in the greater context of the film, which would be sufficient. But there is a dry Christmas tree covered with lit candles. <laughs> And I couldn't take my eyes off of it. It looked so dangerous. And then the bombing happened, and I was like, oh, God, Ross, blow out those candles before you get to the bunker. (laughs) Please do that. You got to blow them out. And that, to me, is this film. It's temporary comfort in the apartment with Stella, but it's an apartment filled with dry Christmas trees decorated with lit candles. It's temporary, and it's fraught. And it's a tension that runs through its entire two hour runtime. I think this film is brilliant for its time and for today. And it must be seen. Uh, I'm giving this film the full five Christmas trees full of lit candles. Loved it. Wow.
0: Uh, I loved it too. I'm, uh, I was totally surprised at how great it was. I I thought this was going to be kind of a a missable, forgettable, you know, 1958 war movie and uh I agree. I mean like the camera work was totally amazing, you know, and and this is the uh this is the DP who did Guns of Navarone and yeah. and a ton of like amazing uh movies and like this is incredibly high level black and white cinematography, really great acting. I think it's worth highlighting how great William Holden is in this movie. Like he has so many different hard jobs to do, like that middle thing of being a captain who is bumbling with the with the pipe but also commanding the respect of his men is brilliantly executed. The the scene where he tries to refuse the order to go out on the mission he knows will be his last is amazing how naked he seems in, in front of those stiff upper lipped British uh, Navy guys. And, um,
1: I don't know about you, but William Holden is rocketing up my list of favorite actors ever. Yeah. More films we see of his unfriendly fire.
0: And to to say nothing of Sophia Loren, who totally steals the show is totally great. Uh, you know, is playing a woman who is deeply traumatized, but trying to maintain in the way of like her adopted culture, and uh, totally steals the show. Uh, great movie. I'll give it i I'll give it four and a half Christmas trees with birthday candles on it. Wow.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm with you guys. You've said it. Uh, you've said it all pretty plainly, I I kept waiting for this movie to let me down and uh, from the opening shot I realized that it wasn't just a a forgotten piece of fluff. I mean, like you, when it came up in our list, I was like, oh, here's some, you know, mid-century Saturday afternoon filler. The poster is terrible. (laughs) It's only, you know, it's only the promise of the of the actors that kind of makes you feel like, well, maybe I'll risk it. The movie never let me down. It asked more questions than, than we could. I mean, we're, I'm still grappling with, with what, what I, what the takeaway from it was. I agree with you that the acting was superb. William Holden is not my favorite actor, but he killed it in this movie. The idea that he would have won an Oscar for Stalag 17. But, and I think that Trevor Howard did win a BAFTA award for this movie. So there was some, there was some acknowledgement of it. I just tremendous. It's a tremendous movie. And it's hard for me to give a five-star review to a movie that isn't somehow, um, I don't know, bigger than this because this isn't epic in any way and i think it's it's about tugboat captains like it's right there in the yeah. premise <laughs> this is a this is a small slice of a small corner of world war 2 that who cares tugboat captains whatever but it's not trying to make the case that tugboat captains were the real heroes of the war like it it, it keeps redefining itself on on like a smaller scale and never tries to define itself on a big scale and so it's it's hard to say like oh this is like bridge over the river kwai it's one of the great movies and yet it is kind of yeah so boy I'm just gonna go for it and just say it's a five-star movie.
1: Yeah, wow. take
2: that, Leonard Malton. Really weird, really weird at how. I mean, what do you want out of a movie that isn't in this movie?
1: It, I can't think of anything that's fucked up about it. it it's it's got like, like what would you improve? Really good war stuff.
2: Really, I mean, the the just the battle scenes and the fighting and the and we haven't even talked about the mysterious German U-boat captain that's. That's sailing around in a French captured training sub and just taking pot yeah. shots at tub- <laughs> summer, taking pot shots at tugboats to practice. <laughs> he's the main threat in the film, and it's terrifying.
0: And we barely talked about it. He's not- terrifying and also semi-insulting.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's like, well, I don't want to take on any, uh, like, I don't want to send these students out to take on like real ships until we blow some tugboats out of the water like wow (laughs) so great yeah yeah I don't I don't see what else there is uh to one out of a movie
0: great movie wow see it John did you have a guy
2: there were a lot of guys in this movie a lot of the sailors you can tell that the extras
0: did you know that Michael Caine was an extra in this movie really what yeah He's a he's one of the sailors, I guess. I didn't I didn't spot him, but then I read that he's in it uh, later on. Cool.
2: You, you can see that a lot of the extras are real sailors. Like you don't get you don't get faces like that any other way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh,
1: some real resting sailor face.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you can tell you know there are a lot of these joint productions, British American productions. You can just tell this was filmed in in England and not in California. But so many of those crewmen with their, with their scraggly whiskers and their doubtful faces, like they all felt any one of them could have been me. But then the first mate shows up Weaver, the mate who is like soft spoken and gentle and feels like a, feels like a like a young officer you know like you can tell him apart from yeah. the, from the crew like the engineer is you know is kind of the rickles of the movie he's playing the the very very underplayed comedic relief but but weaver is is a strange is a strange role because we see the first mate a lot in movies and the first mate is always either angling for the captain's job or ruthlessly loyal to the captain or you know like in some way has a one note character arc but but weaver the mate he just feels very complicated and he feels very competent and it's all conveyed with a with a Pretty small amount of screen time and and not a lot of lines. And every time he was on screen, I was just like, "Oh, that! I wish he's not me. I wish he were my mate."
1: That was a very efficient character in the times that you saw him, right? Yeah.
0: Do you do you mean you wish he was your mate in the way of you walking off into the into the steam in the train station with him? (laughs) Yes, I do.
2: To go back and share that wonderful apartment. I mean the the closets are empty.
0: They already yeah. got plants in the windows. Mm. Um, my guy is the is the engineer. Actually, um, just uh, I really uh, identified with the getting an incomplete amount of information and extrapolating a bunch of wrong things about <laughs> what's going on from it. Uh, every time you know they told him to like throw it in full reverse, and he's like, "This guy's a total bozo up there. He doesn't know what he's doing." Uh,
1: it me. And having a private place to talk shit about other people. I thought that was neat. And also getting caught talking
0: shit by having the person come up behind you. That's great. (laughs) It me.
1: Uh, My guy is the hotel porter uh, who shows Ross to room 77. He's
2: a great hotel porter.
1: And he is sort of the other side of the coin to the Stella character, where Stella tries to make a go of it, Uh, the porter is defeated. The porter wants the war to be over. The porter doesn't care for the people in his hotel, doesn't care for them or about them and gives them watered down booze. And he's just kind of a ghost there. And I think that is a type of person during wartime that we see far more often in other war films. And yeah. He is one of the few that we see in this film who has been defeated by the circumstances, and he gets very little time to show you that defeat, but in the few scenes that he gets, I thought he, his, his way of being haunted really stuck with me. And like on paper, it would be funny that he's refilling a bottle of booze with water and passing it off for a buck, but, like, there's nothing funny about his damage. And I thought it was really well done by him. Noel Purcell is the actor who played him, and I thought he was great. Right on.
0: Well, uh, we uh, we got to pick the next movie we're going to watch. And uh, we have watched three World War II movies in a row. And three kind of set in the same time period and in a similar context in... World War II, so we definitely gotta change it up. Uh, John, are you in arm's reach of your of your hundred sided die?
2: Uh, no. Unfortunately, my house are is you, completely uh, packed, and there is no okay.
0: hundred sided
2: die. Let me see what I do have in here.
0: Um, well, we could uh, you could just throw out a, a random number between one and one hundred and thirty four, and that would be uh, that would be safe. Okay, let's. I have sorted all the World War IIs to the bottom of the list. Uh,
2: let's say seventy-seven.
0: Seventy-seven is a two thousand eighteen film directed by Alex Van Galen about Viking wars. It's called Red Bad.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, is he related to Strongbad? Mm.
0: I don't know. It's a, it's, I think it's a, it's a Dutch film. It's all one it, word. It, it might be in Dutch.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: Nederlanders. We, we've watched a, it, a, Dutch film or two. Yeah. This, uh, the description is the power struggles and wars between the Frisian Redbid and his sworn enemy, Pepin of Herstal, Lord of the Franks.
2: Wow! How so, uh, exciting!
0: Some, some period war.
2: This is some some uh, fun. Some like a pre pre Charlemagne action.
0: Yeah. Seven hundred and fifty four
2: A.D. Oh, this is going to be fun. I'm going to have a lot of fucking stupid, boring shit to say about this.
1: <laughs> Lord of the Franks was my uh, competitive eating nickname. <laughs> All right, well, that'll be next week on
0: Friendly Fire. We'll leave it with robs, 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 robs from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor go the spoiler alerts.
1: Friendly Fire's a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte, our logo artist is by Nick Dittmore and our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. If you like helping out the show, well then head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate to show your support. You can also leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're using Twitter, make sure to use the hashtag friendlyfire. Fire. You can find Ben on Twitter at benjaminahr. Adam is at cutfortime. John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. (laughs)
2: org.
1: Comedy and culture.
2: Artist owned. Audience supported.